There's a truth we're going to learn today that just thrills my soul, and I pray that you would help me to grasp it more deeply and help us all to just worship you as we learn it. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Several years ago, a friend of mine named Jan introduced me to a friend of his who had been a compulsive gambler. This man admitted that he was completely addicted to gambling. And he and his wife actually had separate companies, so she, had, she ran her own uh, um, finances, he ran his own finances. She had no idea how often he was on the brink of absolute bankruptcy with nothing left at all. And she also didn't know that there were times when the trunk of his car was filled with cash, when he had been winning. On one occasion, he was pulled over for speeding, and he bribed the cops by handing them handfuls of cash out of the trunk of his car. And he, he, he battled with this, this addiction for year after year after year. And Jan one day said to him, you know what, you need to quit. And the guy said, I'm going to quit. And Jan said to him, you're going to need help. And the man said, you want to bet? <laughs> when I met him, his addiction was several years in the past. And when I met him, he, he said this, I didn't end it, Jesus did. Jesus came into my life, and it is only because he is in here, and he tapped his chest, it is only because he is in here that I am able to control my desire to gamble. Now, you may not be, have, have a gambling addiction, maybe you have some other form of addiction, or even if you don't have an addiction, there's some things in life that we look to to satisfy our souls. Our souls are thirsty. We were designed to live in a better world. We were designed to live in direct relationship with God. We were designed to live in direct relationships with one another. And our souls have been ripped away from that. And so there's a thirst and a hunger in all of our souls that we satisfy one way or another. I asked you to define an addiction. It's an addiction is any pathological. And pathological means it's an illness. It's something that can grab hold of you. Any pathological relationship with any mood-altering experience that has life-damaging consequences. In other words, what an addiction is, is I don't want to feel what I should be feeling. And because I don't want to feel what I should be feeling, I find something that will take away, take me away from those feelings. There's all kinds of addictions. Chemicals, of course, lots of people get hooked on alcohol, on drugs of all kind. A lot of people are self-medicating themselves with all kinds of chemicals just in order to try and take away that soul hunger, that soul thirst a little bit. Many people use food. You know, you're, you're feeling down. And I don't know if you discovered this, but I'll recommend it to you. If you're ever feeling down, go find a Snickers bar. They are, <laughs> it's just amazing what a Snickers will do for you and will, will lift you up. Um, <laughs> we all know that food is one of those, we call it comfort food, often, for that very reason, that there are times when you, you turn to food to comfort you. I forgot to put this one up. Shopping is another addiction. In fact, in Houston, there's a women's clothing store called Therapy. <laughs> Isn't that a brilliant name? It's just like, come here for your therapy. And can... Sex or love addictions are very, very common. I uh, picked up a man who had been in uh, rehab for three weeks to deal with alcohol. And I picked him up from, from there and, and started to drive him home. And he said, Raymond, I'm dry. I'm done. 
I haven't had a drink for three weeks, and alcohol is now in the past. And I was like, wow, that's so wonderful. He said, but I've got to tell you, this is a married man. I've got to tell you, I met a woman in rehab. And oh my gosh, she is so wonderful. And we are so deeply in love. I said, ah, you're, all you did is you cross-addicted. You're still an addict, but instead of being addicted to alcohol, now you're addicted to sex. You're addicted to being in love with a woman, and that's not going to last. Do you realize you just wasted three weeks of your life? Because now you're going to have to deal, because sooner or later that love is going to disappear. That love is going to go down, and you're not going to be so fulfilled with it. And guess what? You're going to go back to the bottle probably. I didn't, you know, it's kind of like, thank you, Raymond. That's really encouraging of you. But he needed to know you just cross-addicted. And it's amazing how often in life, we cross-addict. We go from one addiction to another to another. We think we've been healed. We haven't. We've just cross-addicted to something else. Work. You can be addicted to work, and here's what's scary about being addicted to work. People praise you. Man, you're always here. You're here early in the morning, and you leave late at night. You never take days off. You are such an amazing person, and that's one of the problems. One of the most dangerous things is when you're addicted to work and you're a pastor. People go, oh, you're so godly. Oh, man, you are always there serving the Lord. And I know that because that was the addiction I had to fight. For several years, I never took a day off. I didn't take vacations. And then my wife put down her foot, and she said, we're going for a three-week vacation. Do you know what panic I felt inside of me? <laughs> to go away on a vacation for three weeks, it was like, she said, I've already scheduled it. We're going. For the first week of that vacation, I felt so guilty, I didn't know what to do with myself. All day long, it was just like, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. The second week, I slept all week. I couldn't wake up. And then the third week, it was like, I don't ever want to go back to work again. <laughs> we were in Cape Town, it was like, oh, I'm going to become a beach bum. I'm never going back to work again. It takes a lot of work and the interference of the Spirit of God for you to break an addiction and... Thank God, that one broke for me. Emotions, we can get addicted to emotions. You can get addicted to being depressed. For some people, it's where they live, not because they're depressed, but that's because where they want to be. They want to be depressed because they've, that's now become their whole identity is I'm always depressed, I'm always down. Come on, we're all blue at one time or another. And some people just get stuck in there. Some men substitute, instead of depression, they substitute anger. And that's a very common thing that, that does a lot of damage. That when you're feeling blue, when you're feeling down, and you get angry, it gives you that adrenaline kick. All of a sudden, there's some, something surging inside of you, and it's the anger that causes the adrenaline to kick, and it helps you over that feeling for a moment. Weirdly enough, you can get addicted to religion. And it's not that weird. There are millions of people all over this world who are addicted to religion because the religion helps them to think their lives have got meaning. You can be, even become addicted to Christianity. Not Jesus, but Christianity. You can become addicted to religion and to the religious factors and so on. So, all of us have this soul hunger, this soul thirst. We were created to live in a better world than this. And we've been separated from God and we've been separated from one another. And our souls are hungry and thirsty all of the time. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed exactly that need inside of us. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the first section of it is called the Beatitudes. The Beatitude is a Latin word that comes from the word blessed, and the word blessed comes from a Greek word makarios, which means you're the, you've got all the greatest benefits that God could possibly give a human being if you're blessed. And so Jesus starts his sermon, 
And he describes to us who are the blessed people, who are the Makarios people, the people who have got the greatest advantages during this life. And I call the Beatitudes the character traits of an apprentice of Jesus. Now hang with me, okay? What Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes, he's not telling us how to get into heaven. He's talking to his disciples. Now when Jesus saw, here we go, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His apprentices, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. In other words, he's not going to teach them how you become a disciple. He's going to teach them what the life of a disciple is like if they allow God constant access to them. Are you guys with me there? So he's not now. It so happens that when we become believers that a lot of this happens to us as well. But, as we, but it's more describing what happens when you've become a follower of his. He said, all right, I'm going to describe to you. You're now a citizen of heaven living as a citizen on earth. And I want to describe to you, if you are an apprentice who really wants to grow in your relationship with me, this is what your life is going to be like. And I use a diamond simply because it helps me to grasp what he's doing. A diamond shines because light gets inside of it, and then is reflected and refracted and comes out of it. And the first of these uh, uh, Beatitudes, I believe, describe how God gets access to our lives. We're poor in spirit, recognizing I am spiritually impoverished. I don't have any credentials to buy my place in heaven. I don't have anything that, that I can bring to God that is my resume that will, imp that will gain me access to heaven. Being poor in spirit means I know I'm spiritually bankrupt. When I mourn, it's because I'm becoming more and aware of the distance between myself and God and myself and other people. We translated beak last week. That's such a pathetic translation. I should get rid of it. The word is humble. A better translation of it. Back in the early days, meek captured a whole lot of thoughts. Humble, gentle. Put them all together. Meek now just sounds like weak, so it's not a good word to use anymore. So humble would be better. Where I'm aware of my spiritual need for God, I'm aware of the distance between me, and I humble myself, and I ask Jesus to come into my life. And when he does, he creates a hunger and a thirst in me for something better than what this world can deliver. Something that will really satisfy my soul. And that is the hunger and thirst for righteousness. Next week, we'll pick up on the fact that once he's into our lives, he now starts to reflect out of us. And we become merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted for righteousness. Those kind of things happen as a result of him gaining access to our lives. So Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember this, it doesn't mean blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are those who, who think I'm just a worm, I'm miserable. That's not it at all. He's talking about somebody who's standing before God and thinking, I can bring my credentials. I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. He's saying, it's not enough. As you'll see, Jesus said, you've got to be perfect. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted as we become aware of our distance from God and our distance from one another and mourn over that. God comforts us. And blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. We should stop right now and be standing on the, on the pews and going, yes, we're going to inherit the earth. If you've humbled yourself before God and Jesus Christ is now your Lord, this, we're going to live here for 70, well, let's make it 80, just, just push it a little bit, 90, 100 years. This world isn't all there is. The, they're going to, we're going to inherit the new world, the world to come, the eternal world. 
most incredible blessing that we could long for. But in the meantime, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So it's important we understand what righteousness is. To be righteous means to have right standing before God legally. The Hebrew word was often used in a judge, in a, in a courtroom. And a judge was called to, to, to be tzaddik. He was called to be righteous. And he was called to examine somebody before him and to declare whether that person was guilty or not guilty. And to be, be righteous means that we stand before God and God declares us to be completely forgiven and completely holy. Completely removed from our sin legally as our judge. But it also means, as you study the New Testament, it describes upright character and lifestyle. That that is what, when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's talking about the fact that as you become a committed uh, follower of his, as you become a committed apprentice, something's going to start happening inside of you where you start to get a hunger and a thirst for living the way God wants you to live. And it's weird how it starts to show up. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll notice that it began to show up, that things began to come into your life that you wouldn't have thought of changing beforehand. But it begins to happen because he makes you hunger and thirst for the right kind of character, the right kind of lifestyle. Jesus said it this way, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. The standard for us to enter into heaven is absolute perfection. Nothing less but absolute perfection. And that's impossible. None of us can do that. It's absolutely impossible for any person to be perfect. You would have to never think a wrong thought, never do a wrong thing your entire life, from birth all the way through till now. And it's too late for all of us. And Jesus said, the only way you can come into God's family is you've got to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we'll look at that in more, a little bit more in depth. So we have no hope. Unless God does something about our sin, unless God does something about the fact that we need to be cleansed of all of our sin. And here's what happens. God declares believers to have right standing before him in Jesus. Okay, now, in order for me to grasp that, I'm sorry, but I have to have pictures. So this is Raymond. April the 14th, 1965, dead in his trespasses and sins, a sinner, okay? Didn't believe in Jesus, didn't want to go to church, didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But that night, my girlfriend's father, who I was terrified of, sat me down and explained who Jesus is, he explained that Jesus is God, who took upon himself humanity, he humbled himself. Then he took upon him our sins. So, here's Raymond, ordinary old human Raymond, covered with sin. And there's nothing I can do about it. I can't cleanse myself. I can improve my behavior, but I can't stop the thoughts and the, the, the twistedness inside of me. I can do nothing about it. But when Jesus came to earth, and we'll let this little nesting doll be Jesus. These are those Russian nesting dolls. I got them once Congress was through with them. Just kidding. <laughs> when Jesus was nailed to the cross, Jesus took Raymond's sin, your sin, my sin, upon himself. 
so that he became legally, judiciously, judicially responsible for my sin. And he was punished as a substitute for me. He was punished in my place. And then he said, it is finished. It's done. You've been punished completely. Okay? Now, here's what happens. That when you come to believe in Jesus Christ, God does an incredible miracle. Now watch those dolls as we go through it, and I'll explain what he does. God declares believers to be, have the legal standing of Jesus Christ once we put our faith in him. Watch this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God. There is no one who seeks God. Now we all go, no, 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 that's true. There are people who look for God. No, they don't look for the real God. They look for a God of their own making. And all of us do that. We invent our own little God, and we make sure that he fits in the parameters where I can relate to him. And that's the God we believe in. But he's not the real God, the true God of, of the universe. And there is no one who is righteous. Not one human being is righteous. We're all corrupted by sin. We all are, are, are completely twisted and, and, and uh, without hope on ourselves. There's no one who understands how to get to God on their own. And there's no one who seeks God. Ha! But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We in ourselves don't have righteousness. God says, I will give you Christ's righteousness if you believe in him. Hmm. God made him, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what happens. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God places you in him. Oh, isn't that a most astounding thought? That once you believed in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he sees you in Jesus Christ. Okay? Jesus took our sin upon himself and took it away from us. He doesn't give us his righteousness in an exchange. He takes us in to him. And it's one of the most difficult concepts to get. That's why I needed the little dolls to show you. That, he, that we are in Christ. Watch this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. <sighs> Let's just go home. That's so cool. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the most incredible thing? That the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you're part of a new creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and on the sixth day, he created man and woman. And from that day on, he didn't create anything else until the first person believed in Jesus Christ. And when the first person believed in Jesus Christ, a new creation came into existence. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not just a human being who's sort of religious. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ forever. I'm going to read an incredible little letter at the end just to show you how, how wonderful this is. But for now, to, for, for us to be declared righteous, God said, I'll do it. That if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ, I will then see you in Christ. And I don't see your sin any longer. I see you as righteous. You have right standing before me because you're in my son.
Now, theologians call that imputing God's righteousness to us. He gives us the righteousness of Christ by placing us in Christ. Okay, so how many of you would say that right now, ever since I believed in Jesus Christ, I haven't committed a sin. Ever since I believed in Jesus Christ, I've been living an absolutely pure life. Nope, absolutely none of us can say that. So there's another factor in this. God not only imputes Christ's righteousness to us, he also imparts Christ's righteousness to us on a practical day-by-day process. God the Spirit empowers upright character and lifestyle in Believers, When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, he's just stating a fact of life of believers, that God will create this hunger and thirst inside of us, a hunger and a thirst to begin growing. I think I've told you about my cousin's husband. His name was Terry, and he accepted Christ. (laughs) And about two weeks after he accepted Christ, Terry came to me and he said, I think I need to quit smoking pot. (laughs) And I said, why? He said, I don't know. Just something inside of me tells me that I need to quit smoking pot. And I said, well, all your family wishes you would quit smoking pot. And all of us are aware that you need to quit smoking pot. But why are you doing that? It's kind of like, I don't know. I'll tell you why. God created that hunger and thirst inside of him, that desire to begin to grow. We come to church. Why? Because we're forced to? No. Something draws us toward one another, draws us toward God, draws us to worship. I, I, we, at my church in Philadelphia started an evening service. We were right in the area where um, Villanova University is um, and uh, several other colleges, Bryn Mawr College around us. And we started an evening service for college students. And that, college, that evening service went just grew like crazy. I think one night we had about 600 college students in this auditorium. And there was a visiting professor from Russia. Well, I'm picking on Russians today, but anyway. There's a visiting <laughs> professor from Russia, and he came up to me, and he started to argue theology and God and everything like that. And then a light went on in my brain, and I turned him around, and I said, how many people do you think we had tonight? He said, I don't know. I said, maybe about 600. I said, now, why were they here? He said, I don't know. I said, now, understand this. The state didn't make them come. State wouldn't even win if they tried. Their parents didn't make them come. Why did they come? It's a Sunday night. Why do all these students come here? And he was like, I don't know. I tell you why. Because Jesus brought them. Jesus called them. They're hungry to be with one another. They're hungry to be with these people. And that's what God does. There's that miracle inside of us that he stirs inside of us that we become more and more hungry. We want to become more and more like Jesus in character and in our lifestyle. How does that happen? Paul writings these famous words, very well-known words, says, Be very careful then how you live, speaking to us, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The city of Ephesus was a city where they worshipped the Greek god Bacchus, and the way they believed you get in touch with the gods was to get drunk. And so that was part of their, the worship in the, in the temples, that people would, in the, in the pagan temples, people would get drunk, and they think in their drunken state they were now in touch with, the, with their gods. They were in touch with demons, if anything, but still. 
And God says, and, and Paul says, okay, it's time for you guys to stop getting drunk, uh, which leads to debauchery, which is a wasted life. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. He uses that beautiful image. Let the Spirit of God fill you. Now, here's what happens. And I'm sorry, I just have to take Raymond out for a moment. Not only does God put us in Christ, God puts himself in us. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes and takes up permanent residence inside of you. And he's there not just to give you life, but he's there to be your coach. He's there to start moving you. He's there to start causing us to become more and more like Jesus Christ, more and more righteous. He's working on your character. He's working on your, on your behavior. Once you're a believer, there's no backing out, by the way. <laughs> you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, the hope of glory, and there's no backing out. And that's where God begins to work on the inside of us and moving us. And the Spirit of God, this is a fascinating verb. Instead, be filled with the Spirit can be translated this way. Instead, let the Spirit fill you. He wants to. He wants to permeate your life. He wants to go into every part of your life. And he comes into this part of my life where Raymond gets angry at other drivers. <laughs> and he comes in there and he says, that's not how I want my apprentice to behave. Okay? I want you to understand. I want you to stop with this anger inside of you. We need to work on it. I was in the army. When you're in the army, there's language they use that becomes a normal part of everyday conversation. <sighs> Those words are always there inside of me. And your shoelace, shoelace snaps. And <laughs> One of those words comes out. And the Spirit of God says, clean up your tongue, Raymond. Stop speaking like that. And what he wants to do is he wants to flow in and he wants to fill and he wants to change. He also comes in and he says, okay, Raymond, I've given you a gift. You love studying. <laughs> that wasn't Raymond, okay? When I was a senior in high school, if you told me I was going to go on to college and seminary and spend the rest of my life studying, I'd have run and jumped off the nearest first bridge I could come to. <laughs> I hated studying. And God changed me. There was an incredible thing the Spirit of God did so that if you ever walk into my office and I'm in the middle of studying and I get annoyed at you, I'm sorry. I just can't multitask. And so the anger, <laughs> never mind. See, see what happens? The Spirit of God wants to fill and wants to change us from the inside out. And as he does so, we change. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons we come together to worship, because the Spirit of God is doing that work among us. By the way, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, notice that? A mix of songs. We use psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We mix the songs every week so that there are some songs that some people love, some songs that other people love, and there's some songs Raymond hates and we're never going to do them again. But <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens is you have that mix of songs happening. And as we do so in another passage, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit causes to grow inside of us, is these things that we can't create ourselves, love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I think the Spirit of God snickered when he wrote that. 
You're welcome to become addicted to these things if you want. You're welcome to do all of these things in excess. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus said this about us. He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. That's what God is doing. He's at work turning us from these little acorns into oaks of righteousness for the display of His splendor. So you go, well, that's wonderful. So God places us in Christ and He places His Spirit in us. That's cool. I've got to do nothing about it. Unfortunately, that's not true. An apprentice is someone, Jesus said, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Peter writes this. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. In other words, God does all of that. He declares us righteous by putting us in Christ. He gives us the power to become righteous by giving his spirit to live inside of us. And he creates a hunger and a thirst in us to grow in that direction. And our job is to cooperate. Our job is to move with him in that direction and make that our goal in the future. So one way to, for us to evaluate where we are in this is to ask, what do I hunger and thirst for? Hmm. What makes me feel alive? What do I do with negative feelings when I'm down, when I'm depressed? Where do I go for relief? What habit must I break? What habit must I begin? What character trait must I cultivate? In other words, we're not passive in this process. It becomes a cooperative thing. Where God gives us the power to do it, God gives us his spirit to empower us to do it. He gives us the desire to do it, and then we have to choose to cooperate with him and move in that direction with him. One of the best illustrations I've ever found is farming. Farming is a joint venture between a farmer and God. Only God can make that seed germinate. But God doesn't clear the field. God doesn't pull out the rocks. He doesn't take out the weeds. He doesn't cut down the trees. He doesn't plow the land. He doesn't sow the seed. The farmer has to do that. The farmer does all of that utterly dependent upon God in order to grow that crop. And so that to me is a great illustration that helps me enormously to understand that God wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. So tonight is the Oscars. Enough, don't preach him and move on. <laughs> Ask ourselves, what is it that feeds our souls? What is it that satisfies my thirst? What is it that makes me feel alive? I found this, this beautiful illustration from a woman by the name of Sarah Hinckley Wilson. She's a professor in Strasbourg, France. And she wrote this, and I want, I want to read it to you. It's kind of long, but hang in there with me, because it is such a wonderful summation 
of, of how we go right and how we go wrong in a relationship with God. She says, picture this. A bride and groom dashing out of the church through showers of birdseed and into the limo, all aglow with the light of love from the vows they've just taken. In the backseat of the car, en route to the reception, they embrace and kiss. Then the groom announces that he has something to say. Now you realize, my dear, he begins, that as far as I'm concerned, we can't really say we're married because I don't know yet what kind of wife you're going to turn out to be. I hope for the best, of course, and I'll help you all I can. But only at the end of our lives will I be able to tell if you've lived up to my expectations. If you have, then, and only then, I'll agree that we truly got married today. But if you don't, then as far as I'm concerned, we were never married at all. After all, how can I call you my wife if you fail to be a wife to me? Are you making the parallel between us and God? Under such circumstances, it will not be a happy honeymoon, if there's one at all. A wife cannot be a wife if her whole existence as wife is conditional and under constant scrutiny. She will certainly fail. The groom has completely misunderstood what just happened. The marital vow is a forward-looking creative act, not a retrospective judgment. The couple that tied the knot only 60 minutes ago is every bit as married as the couple celebrating their 60th anniversary. Whatever happens in the course of the marriage does not affect the marriedness of the couple. Jesus said, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Done. But it would be just as awful a misunderstanding if the bride were to recite to her new husband the following speech. I'm glad you married me. I always wanted to be married. But mainly what I wanted was the status. I was tired of being single. I'll stick with you and never seek a divorce so I can go on calling myself married. But don't expect any closeness, friendship, or desire from me. I've already gotten everything I want out of you, and I've already given everything I intend to give to you. The bride is right. Unlike the aforementioned groom, the two are truly married, even if love and devotion are completely absent from the relationship, though her chances of getting a lifelong married status out of it are pretty slim. But while she has grasped the status of the vows, she has entirely missed the point of making them. It's not merely having the status, but what the status enables. The vows that create the marriage on its first day are the platform of trust from which the whole life of love can and should grow. The couple will never be more married than on their wedding day, but as the years go by, they should be more trusting, more loving, more real together. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So God has called us into his family, not just to give us a fire escape from hell. He's called us into his family because he wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. He wants us to hunger and thirst to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.